up, wake up South Carolina. This is your dude, Spike Lee. And I know that you know the system is rigged. For too long, we've given our votes to corporate puppets. Sold the okie doke. 99% of Americans were hurt by the Great Recession of 2008, and many are still recovering. And that's why I'm officially endorsing my brother, Bernie Sanders. Bernie takes no money for corporations. Nada. Which means he is not on the tape. And when Bernie gets in the White House, he will do the right thing. How can we be sure? Bernie was at the March on Washington with Dr. King. He was arrested in Chicago for protesting segregation and public schools. He fought for wealth and education equality throughout his whole career. No flipping, no flopping. Enough talk. Time for action. Hey, Bernie from Brooklyn. Talk to the folks. I'm Bernie Sanders, Democratic candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Bernie 2016. Not the billionaire. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to send me a message, you can send that message to BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. 2016. And you can check out details of these podcasts and some additional information at my website, bernie-2016.com. So the Nevada caucus is over and Hillary Clinton has won. She beat Bernie by about 5% um, in the caucus results in Nevada and uh, recent polling or polling right before uh, Nevada went to vote was very close. There was a poll that showed Bernie and Hillary were even at 45% apiece. Bernie ended up with slightly better than 47% and Hillary ended up at above 52%. And coming out of that race, there were uh, entrance polls. So there were individuals who were polled as they went into the caucus, as opposed to in many instances where there are exit polls and people are polled after they come out of the polling place. And there was some interesting information that was uh, that that came out um, in those in that entrance polling. And one of the people that wrote about that was Nate Silver at uh, three at 538.com. And actually that that's Nate Silver's website, but this piece is not authored by Nate Silver. This piece is actually authored by Harry Enton. The democratic contest moved to a not totally white state and Hillary Clinton had her best showing yet. She won the Nevada caucuses by over five percentage points, an important margin in a state whose electorate was only 59% white. While there are still some questions about how Latinos voted, Clinton can claim tremendous support from black voters heading into South Carolina and Super Tuesday. According to entrance poll in Nevada, Clinton won black voters 76% to 22%. To put that in context, Clinton's margin is only slightly smaller than Barack Obama's 83% to 
to 14% win with black voters in 2008. While the result wasn't unexpected given that pre-election polls showed Clinton dominant with black voters, Sanders spent a good bit of money on television in the state. That Sanders couldn't close the gap with black voters with a big advertising push is a very ominous sign for his campaign. Many of the upcoming primaries will feature a much higher percentage of black voters than Nevada did. While only 13% of Nevada caucus goers in 2016 were black, their share in the South Carolina will be much higher. 55% of South Carolina Democratic primary voters were black in 2008. That's why Clinton is up by 25 percentage points in the South Carolina polls. Even beyond South Carolina on Super Tuesday, 63% of the delegates up for grabs will be in contests with a higher share of African Americans than Nevada. Better yet for Clinton, 35% of delegates will be up for grabs in contests with at least double the share of African Americans as Nevada. In 2008, 19% of voters in all Democratic primaries were black. Clinton's margin among black voters is a big, big advantage. That's not to say Nevada was all bad news for Sanders. Sanders has cut into Clinton's advantage with Latino voters. In the 2008 Nevada caucuses, Clinton won Latinos 64% to 26%. This year, the entrance poll had Sanders winning Latinos 53% to 45%. I'm a bit skeptical of those numbers, however, given that Clinton won in heavily Latino precincts in Las Vegas. So I've seen several stories about uh, the results from Nevada and several of those, some of those mentioned uh, Sanders winning the Latino vote in the entrance polls in Nevada. And pretty much every single one of them had cast doubt on that exit or that entrance poll and those results for the Latino voters and Sanders actually winning them. What I find is interesting, and and I, I'm not an expert in polling, there certainly could be some reasons why those numbers aren't, uh, aren't particularly accurate. But what I find extremely interesting is the percentage of Latinos in Nevada is higher than the percentage of Blacks. And pretty much every... Uh, media outlet that's writing about this entrance poll is questioning the results of the Latino uh, polling numbers. And none of those are questioning the results of the black voters in that polling, where it shows Clinton with such a huge lead in the black vote. And I think that uh, the main reason for that is because it fits the narrative. It fits the narrative that the Clinton campaign has been spinning, and it fits the narrative that the um, corporate media has been spinning and buying into that Clinton has a firewall, that Clinton is uh, so overwhelmingly supported by minority voters that Sanders has no chance of breaking through. So when there's evidence that Sanders is breaking through to some of those voters, there tends to be widespread doubt. And when there's evidence that Clinton is leading with some of those voters by a very large margin, uh, there no one seems to want to question 
and ask if those uh, polling results are actually accurate. So, as I said, there are very, very few stories that uh, report on the results from Nevada among the Hispanic or Latino voters. But I did find one that takes a little bit more balanced view. This piece is from abcnews.go.com by Gary Langer and Julie Falan. Bernie Sanders' surprise showing among Hispanics in the Nevada caucuses is worth a closer look. There's been some head-scratching about the entrance poll result. The New York Times suggested that Sanders' eight-point win among Hispanics was an unreliable finding, perhaps distorted by the vagaries of cluster sampling. Entrance and exit polls aren't perfect, for sure. Extrapolating from precinct populations to caucus-goers is pretty fraught in itself. And in fact, there is good reason for Sanders to have done well among Hispanics. They're young. It's well established that Sanders has been tearing up the house with young voters. He won 84% of caucus goers under the age of 30 in Iowa, 83% of under 30s in New Hampshire, and 82% of millennials in Nevada. In a word, wow. Compare that to Barack Obama, who famously whomped John McCain among young voters in 2008, managing 66% of their votes. So now let's look at Hispanics. There were inadequate numbers of racial and ethnic minorities to analyze in Iowa and New Hampshire, but not so in Nevada. Hispanics accounted for 19% of voters, 213 respondents among the total sample of 1,024. That's enough to evaluate given a probability-based sample. What do we see? Per the entrance poll, Hispanics participating in the Nevada caucuses were nearly three times likelier than other caucus goers to be younger than 30, and less than half as likely to be 60 or older. Age matters. Hispanics younger than 45 voted 70 to 27 percent for Sanders over Clinton in Nevada, while non-Hispanics under 45 voted almost exactly the same. 73 to 24%. There simply were proportionately more of the former. Internal validity takes us only so far, but there's also external validity for the age by ethnicity differences in Nevada. Per the U.S. Census Bureau, the median age of Hispanics in the state is 27.5, while the median age of non-Hispanics is 42.4. The fact that Hispanics in the state are younger than non-Hispanics would seem to support the notion that Hispanic caucus-goers were younger too, and thus more apt to be Sanders supporters. In all, then, there is decent evidence that the estimate is a good one, and that Sanders did well among Hispanics, not on the basis of their ethnicity, but because of their age. So one story of the several that I've read uh, does point out that it is not unreasonable, unreasonable to believe that that entrance polling is relatively accurate and that those uh, Hispanic voters did vote for Sanders by a larger margin than they voted for Clinton and does uh, 
base that support of of the results on the fact that the Hispanic voters tended to be much younger and younger voters tended to support Sanders in much higher numbers. So the race moves on from Nevada. Uh, The race will certainly be very, very tough in South Carolina for Bernie. Bernie is down by, oh, close to 25% in the polling in South Carolina. Um, Hillary has a, a big lead. Hillary maintains her significant lead among the African-American voters, which make up a, a large part of South Carolina. Beyond South Carolina, we move into Super Tuesday, where there's about 11 states voting and a large number of those are also in the South, and those also have a large African-American populations and African-American voting populations. And Clinton will um, probably end up being very strong in those races as well. There are a couple of places in uh, that are, are voting on Super Tuesday where Sanders has a... Um, lead in some of the polls. In Massachusetts, Sanders is leading, obviously in his home state of Vermont. And in Alaska, Sanders is leading the polls there. Um, so we will, we shall see if Sanders is able to capitalize on his expanding uh, name recognition, more people learning about w- what who Bernie is and what Bernie stands for, and see if uh, the Sanders campaign is able to translate that into votes and into wins. So this next piece is about one of Sanders' policies and actually a very specific part of his tax policies. This is from thestreet.com by Emily Stewart. Quote, yes, I do believe that now after the American people bailed out Wall Street bailed Wall Street out. Yes, they should pay a Wall Street speculation tax so that we can make public colleges and universities tuition-free, said Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders at the sixth Democratic presidential debate in Milwaukee. But what exactly does such a tax entail? One of the core parts of the Sanders campaign platform, the Wall Street speculation tax, otherwise known as a, quote, financial transaction tax, aims to raise billions of dollars in revenue by placing a small levy on every stock, bond, and derivative bought and sold in the United States. He says such a measure would cover the entirety of his $75 billion a year plan to make free college a reality in America. Sanders' proposal largely mirrors the Inclusive Prosperity Act, a bill put forth by Keith Ellison, a Democratic representative from Minnesota in 2015. Under the proposal, stock trades would be taxed at a 0.05% rate, bond trades at a 0.15%, and derivatives at 0.005%. Quote, The idea of taxing trading in financial markets is not especially original. It's been done already in many, many countries, said Robert Pollan, a professor of economics and co-director of the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. 
Pollan's research is a source of both Ellison's and Sanders' plans, though he says he has not discussed the issue at length with Sanders with the Sanders campaign. Sanders' Wall Street speculation tax has two functions, Pollan explained, raising revenue and discouraging excessive speculative trading. Quote, I think it works better as a way for raising revenue. It may discourage trading modestly, but not dramatically, he said. Just how much revenue Sanders' proposal might raise and to the, and to the extent it will impact trading is up for debate. The paper Sanders' campaign website links to, a memo co-authored by Pollan in 2012, estimates the resulting revenue to be upwards of $350 billion. Pollan said that even if current trading volumes drop by an implausibly large number of 50%, he believes it could still raise about $300 billion a year, enough to cover Sanders' free college plan. The Tax Policy Center, a joint venture of the Urban Institute and Brookings Institution, offers a more conservative estimate. A study published by the organization found that a revenue-maximizing financial transactions tax could generate about $75 billion a year. So even on this very low end that the Tax Policy Center has estimated, um, this tax or these taxes could generate of $75 billion a year, that would be the price tag that Sanders has on his uh, tuition-free college plan at public colleges and universities. Um, So that would just cover the costs of that plan. So looking at that, that, I'll call it worst-case scenario, some might not, not term it that way, but looking at that conservative estimate, um, this tax would indeed generate the amount of money that Sanders has earmarked for his plan for tuition-free college. And this story does go on. There's more detail about the tax and, and what its potential implications could be. Um, it basically comes down to, to say, you know, while there's debate about how this might have an impact and how much money this might raise, there is, uh, you know, no certainty until it indeed would become enacted. There are other countries that have this type of a tax. Um, UK has this tax in place, uh, or very similar tax in place, and they generate money with it. I'm not sure the amount of money that they generate with it, um, but it is not an untested uh type of taxation. It definitely occurs in other places. And this next piece is by Ben Adler from grist.org. Six things Bernie Sanders would do to crack down on fracking, even if Congress doesn't go along. Bernie Sanders wants to halt fracking, not just on public land, but on private land, too. How would he actually do that? Grist talked to the Sanders campaign to get previously unreleased specifics about the kinds of strategies he would use if he makes it to the Oval Office. Sanders hasn't proposed eliminating conventional oil and gas drilling or coal mining on private land, but he believes that hydraulic fracturing, a.k.a. fracking, is especially problematic. 
It involves injecting secret chemical brews at high pressure deep into the earth to unleash previously inaccessible deposits of gas and oil, a process that can contaminate local air and water and even cause earthquakes. Sanders recently called for passing a law that would dramatically scale back fracking on private land by closing the so-called, quote, Halliburton loophole that exempts fracking operations from the Safe Drinking Water Act. That change would allow EPA to regulate what's in fracking fluids and how they are used. But like so many of Sanders' proposals, this anti-fracking measure would stand no chance of passing Congress as the House is sure to stay in Republican hands, and the Senate might too. Sanders didn't publicly offer a list of backup plans for cracking down on fracking through executive action, so Grist asked his campaign what he would do about fracking if Congress wouldn't pass his bill. The campaign offered up a number of policy proposals a president could enact on his or her own, geared around these basic principles. Stop letting fracking operations pollute their neighbors' air and water, and stop incentivizing a switch in the energy sector from coal to natural gas. Instead of embracing gas as a supposedly cleaner bridge fuel, Sanders wants to go straight to renewables. Here are the six most significant executive actions that a President Sanders would likely take to put the squeeze on fracking and natural gas. Change the Clean Power Plan to incentivize renewables instead of gas. The biggest problem with Obama's signature climate initiative is that it is structured in such a way as to encourage states to shift their power plants from burning coal to gas. It also encourages switching to renewable energy, of course, and during the first two years, EPA will provide states with emissions credits specifically for certain renewable investments, such as wind and solar projects in low-income communities, through what is called the Clean Energy Incentive Program. Sanders would extend that program through the CPP's lifetime, all the way to 2030. 2. Regulate methane, not just carbon, through the Clean Power Plan. One of the reasons the CPP impl implicitly favors gas is that it only measures and regulates carbon dioxide emissions, which come from a power plant smokestack when fossil fuel is burned. By that measure, gas is only half as bad as coal. But when natural gas is extracted through fracking and piped to power plants, methane leaks out, a greenhouse gas that is 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide over 20 years. Number three, use the Clean Air Act to regulate methane leakage from existing sources and strengthen rules on new sources. Last year, EPA proposed regulation of methane leakage from new sources such as wells and pipelines, but the vast majority of methane leakage comes from existing sources, so Sanders would have EPA regulate them as well. Sanders also wants to make the EPA's rules for new sources more stringent. Regulate containment of fracking fluid under the Clean Water Act. The fluids injected into the earth in fracking operations don't just stay down there. They come back up. Typically, they are poured into containment ponds, which can be exposed to the open air and overflow in storms, leak through holes, and so on. Under Sanders, EPA would create rules for safer containment of used fracking fluid. Number five, investigate the effects of fracking. EPA has abandoned its studies of the risks of water contamination from fracking. Sanders staffers say that under his presidency, the agency would carefully study the effects of fracking and publicize the results. 
And number six, support state and local efforts to ban fracking. The power of the president's bully pulpit to exhort people to do what he or she wants can be overstated. But if the president publicly highlights the dangers of fracking, praising state and local governments that have banned fracking and encourages others to follow their lead, it might help at the margins. These moves would serve the same basic purpose. Stop letting natural gas be artificially cheap by sticking the rest of society with a cost for water, air, and climate pollution. By limiting that pollution and requiring gas companies to spend more money on protecting surrounding communities, Sanders would raise the cost of fracking and the gas and oil it produces. Quote, you impact the market through regulatory authority, says one Sanders aide. And there's a little bit more to that article as well. And as I said, that was on Grist by Ben Adler. And Sanders has been getting some more endorsements as the campaign moves forward. And this next piece is from FloridaPolitics.com. After suffering a tough loss over the weekend in Nevada, Bernie Sanders is getting some love from Florida progressives. In advance of the Sunshine State's presidential primary election on March 15, the Democratic Progressive Caucus of Florida on Monday announced that they are endorsing Sanders in the Democratic primary. Quote, Throughout his political career, as well as his presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders has proved to be a bold progressive who is ready to fight for the values that DPCF members hold dear, said Susan Smith, president of the caucus. Like our membership, Bernie views the problems of income inequality, institutional racism, and money in politics as structural issues that must be addressed for real change to occur. Sanders is an underdog in the Florida Democratic primary against Hillary Clinton. The most recent poll taken by Florida Atlantic University shows the former Secretary of State leading Sanders by 36 percentage points, 62% to 26%. The Progressive Caucus upset some Florida Democrats last year when they came out in opposition to Congressman Patrick Murphy's U.S. Senate bid it led one prominent Democrat to attempt to decertify the group. So some support for Sanders in Florida from a progressive group. And an early poll out of West Virginia shows some good news for Sanders as well. This is from WashingtonPost.com. And this is by David Weigel. West Virginia, a lightly polled state that gave Hillary Clinton one of her biggest victories in the 2008 Democratic primary, is the latest to show evidence of white working class voters moving towards Senator Bernie Sanders. In a new West Virginia poll conducted by Metro News, Sanders leads with 57% support. Clinton trails with 29%. If those numbers held up in the May 10 primary, they would represent one of the primary season's most dramatic reversals. Eight years ago, West Virginia held one of the last contests. After an Obama win in North Carolina gave him an insurmountable delegate lead, Clinton, who had just won Indiana in a squeaker, suggested that, quote, Senator Obama's support among working, har- working hard-working Americans, white Americans, is weakening again. 
In West Virginia, she proved it, carrying every county and beating Obama by a 42-point margin. Victories like that convinced some 2016 Clinton endorsers, like Senator Joe Manchin, that she could win back the rural voters Obama had lost. Yet in exit and entrance polls of the first three primary contests, Clinton has consistently lost less educated white voters to Sanders. In Iowa, white voters who lacked a college degree went for Sanders by one point. In Nevada, those voters went for Sanders by eight points. In New Hampshire, Sanders won them by 38 points, obliterating Clinton in working-class towns she had previously won. Since 2008, Democrats in Appalachia have been driven into near extinction by Republicans who marshaled voters against the Obama administration's EPA and its ballyhooed, quote, war on coal. Just this month, the newly Republican state legislature in West Virginia passed right-to-work legislation over the Democratic governor's veto. So in a very early poll in West Virginia, Sanders is showing some significant strength. And if you listened to the last episode that I put out, you heard me uh, talk about um, some people supporting Sanders' foreign policy stances And this next piece kind of goes a little bit along those lines as well. This is from TheAtlantic.com by Claire Foran. For decades, Bernie Sanders has traveled the world, pursuing an unconventional approach to diplomacy. American politicians often visit other countries to project influence abroad and strengthen existing alliances. Foreign travel can also be leisurely, allowing elected officials to play tourists and spend time in luxury hotels. Of course, not everyone sticks to the same script. Sanders has charted a different course, traveling abroad to dissent against his own government and critique the way that America wields power on a global stage. He has risked controversy by extending an olive branch to left-leaning governments shunned by the American political establishment. Along the way, Sanders has demonstrated a deep interest in foreign policy and a desire to shape the way the world views the United States. As a member of Congress, Sanders has visited at least 41 countries, including Mexico, China, Israel, Vietnam, and South Africa, over the course of more than two dozen government-sponsored and privately funded trips. His travels have taken him to the Middle East to visit a refugee camp in Jordan, discuss the Syrian conflict with diplomats in Turkey, and meet U.S. military officials in Afghanistan. Sanders has traveled to Central America to warn against the dangers of flawed trade policy and spent considerable amount of time visiting Nordic nations that he now holds up as models for America to emulate. While serving as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, Sanders made foreign travel something of a priority, a rarity for an elected official involved in city government. He even set off on a trip to the Soviet Union after marrying his wife, Jane, in an effort to cement a sister-city relationship. Throughout his travel, Sanders has articulated the idea that domestic and foreign policy and foreign priorities are inextricably linked. 
He has consistently railed against corporate power and advocated for workers' rights, applying the same lens to foreign policy that he uses to diagnose many of the problems he sees in American society. That's the picture that emerges from an examination of public travel records and media coverage of his trips. Sanders' memoir, a partial list of countries he, has, he had visited, provided by his Senate office, and Legistorm, a database that tracks privately financed congressional travel. Ever the activist, Sanders has traveled abroad to voice opposition to American foreign policy and U.S. military intervention. As mayor of Burlington, Sanders was an outspoken opponent of President Ronald Reagan's foreign policy and visited Nicaragua in 1985 to show support for the left-wing Sandinista government, a regime Reagan worked to undermine. Sanders met with Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega during the trip, which was intended as a political statement. Sanders explained that his aim was, quote, to convey to the Nicaraguan people that, in my view, a majority of Americans do not believe it is appropriate for the United States to unilaterally overthrow governments which it dislikes, according to Stephen Seufers, the socialist mayor, Bernard, Bernard Sanders in Burlington, Vermont. In expressing dissent, Sanders outlined a vision for U.S. conduct on the global stage, arguing that America is at its best when it engages with the rest of the world on an equal footing and not on the basis of brute force. Quote, we want our nation to be bold and brave, but not with guns and not with machine guns and not with napalm, Sanders said in a speech during his trip to Nicaragua. Instead, Sanders argued America should, quote, work out problems based on mutual respect with other nations. The message signaled his concern with America's image abroad. Sanders seemed determined to put forward an alternative to the foreign policy ideals envisioned by the U.S. political establishment to show that he and like-minded Americans were sympathetic to the concerns of citizens of other countries who might mistrust American foreign policy and military intervention. Far from shunning foreign policy in favor of a focus on domestic priorities, Sanders frequently expressed the belief that foreign and domestic policy are deeply intertwined. Quote, I saw no magic line separating local, state, national, and international issues, he explained in his memoir. That idea underpinned Sanders' efforts to strengthen ties between the U.S. and far-left governments that many Americans viewed with deep distrust. When asked to explain why he hoped to see a thaw in U.S.-Soviet relations before departing on his trip to the USSR in 1988, Sanders suggested that hostility between the two global powers had cost America dearly. Quote, These people have been our, quote, enemies, and in the name of that rivalry, we are spending hundreds of billions of dollars in that, that, in my view, should be spent on health care and housing, Sanders said. Sanders deployed similar logic to call for normalizing relations with Cuba in 2014 on the eve of a trip to the country. Quote, American businesses are losing billions of dollars because of the economic embargo, Sanders said. That wasn't the first time he had traveled to Cuba. In his memoir, he recalls a visit in 1989 where he hoped to meet with Fidel Castro but had to settle for the mayor of Havana instead. 
While traveling abroad, Sanders engaged with global affairs through the lens of economic inequality. At times, he seemed to go out of his way to highlight what he saw as the pernicious impact of trade policy on American and foreign workers. In 2003, Sanders traveled to Mexico on a trip sponsored by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a major labor union, to study the impact of the North America Free Trade Agreement, a trade deal signed by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. After returning, Sanders penned a scathing critique of economic globalization for the nation, describing how rural farmers, quote, had been devastated by competition with American corporations. And the story goes on to uh, cover a few more of the places where Sanders visited. Sanders traveled in his time as mayor and as a member of Congress and points out to his much broader worldview than many of the corporate media and many of the political establishment now give him any credit for having. And this piece is from Salon.com by Daniel Denver. In last week's political battle, over the meaning of the word progressive, Hillary Clinton charged that Bernie Sanders had fallen short in failing to back immigration reform in 2007. Quote, I don't think it was progressive to vote against Ted Kennedy's immigration reform, Clinton said, after slamming Sanders for his past opposition to the Brady Bill. She repeated this line of attack last night. The Washington Post Callum Borchers called this, quote, a solid answer by Clinton. If so, that's largely because many don't understand the substance or politics of guest worker programs. Many immigrant rights groups have long opposed guest worker programs, and for good reason. They're geared towards maximizing exploitation and minimizing protection of immigrant workers. As Bill Chandler, executive director of the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance and board member of the National Network for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, put it in 2013, they are, quote, another form of indentured servitude and a benefit for employers, not workers. Critically, guest workers are often bound to just one employer, denying them basic leverage against an exploitive or abusive boss quitting. If a guest worker quits, they may lose their legal right to stay in the country. Bosses hold a deportation card over their head. Sanders voted against the 2007 comprehensive immigration reform legislation precisely because it included an expansion of such programs. The legislation split the labor movement with SEIU supporting it and AFL-CIO opposed. Quote, you have people being terribly exploited, and if they stood up for their rights, they would be thrown out of the country, Sanders said recently. Quote, I happen to believe we do have to move towards comprehensive immigration reform and a path towards citizenship. Frank Sharry, who in 2007 was executive director of the National Immigration Forum, has conceded that it was a failed strategy to offer provisions intended to curry favor with Republicans because many, at the end of the day, would not come around to legalizing undocumented immigrants. Quote, That's why I don't get all worked up like Bernie Sanders screwed us, 
Sherry told Bloomberg. Upon reflection, we really realized that we had made a mistake, a strategic mistake, in allowing progressives to get divided in hopes of getting Republican votes. So this story explains the background and one of the major reasons why Sanders voted against that immigration bill. The immigration bill was flawed, as is much legislation. And in this particular case, the flaws for Sanders outweighed the good positive steps that the uh, bill would have introduced. And from digital.vpr.net by Angela Avancy. Vermont Rep. Peter Welch has thrown his support behind the presidential candidacy of his fellow congressional delegate, Senator Bernie Sanders. Welch told Vermont Edition on Friday that he will vote for Sanders in Vermont's presidential primary, which will be held on March 1, Super Tuesday. He said he also plans to cast his superdelegate vote in favor of Sanders at the Democratic National Convention in July. Quote, I'll be voting and I'll, I've decided to vote for Bernie Sanders, Welch told VPR's Bob Kinzel. Quote, and as a superdelegate, I'll follow through and vote for him when we get to the convention in July. Welch's declaration of support for Sanders is the first to come from a high-profile Vermont politician. Governor Peter Shumlin and Senator Patrick Leahy have both endorsed Sanders' rival, former, Pres former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Sanders' fellow state Senator Patrick Leahy had said his superdelegate vote will go to Clinton at the convention, even if Vermont voters favor Sanders. Quote, long before Senator Sanders ever said he was going to run, I urged then-Secretary Clinton to run and told her I'd support her. I'd never break my word, Leahy said at a press conference on Monday. So uh, Sanders is picking up another supporter from Congress, I think think that adds up to two to sorry to three from the US Congress. There are very few in the Congress, very few leaders in the Democratic Party that have come out so far to endorse Sanders. Um, uh, Representative Ellison and Representative whose name I will massacre, I think it's Grahilva. Um and now Representative Peter Welsh have uh, come out in support and endorsement of Bernie Sanders' campaign. And finally, wrapping things up tonight from MassLive.com. A new poll has Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders leading Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton by seven points in the Massachusetts primary. Public policy polling showed Sanders grabbing 49% to Clinton's 42%. The Massachusetts presidential primary is set for March 1. While likely voters believe Clinton is stronger on foreign policy and trusted to improve race relations, they also believe Sanders is trusted to crack down on Wall Street and, quote, pursue policies that raise the incomes of average Americans. 75% of likely, Demo likely Massachusetts Democratic primary voters said they had a favorable opinion of Sanders. Likely voters said they had a 60% favorable rating of 
Clinton. So one of the states that is voting on March 1st on Super Tuesday does have some polling that shows that Bernie is in the lead. Um, most of the states that are set to vote, currently the polls show that Hillary Clinton is leading. Um, fortunately for Bernie Sanders, and actually for any candidate on the Democratic side, um, delegate totals are, are uh, voting in the primaries in states are not winner takes all as far as delegates go. Delegates are um, pledged proportionately. So if Bernie Sanders does very well, even if he doesn't win, he will get a significant number of those delegates. Of course, to win overall, he's go going to have to get a majority of those delegates. And to do that, he's going to have to win in a number of states. Um, you know, so far, three states, only three states have cast their votes. And Sanders won one of those by a very, very large margin. Uh, Hillary Clinton won one of those by a relatively small margin in Nevada with a, a, about 5%. And in Iowa, the margin was razor thin and they were virtually tied so that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can check out more about this podcast and some links to additional information at Bernie-2016.com. And heading out today, we have... Bernie Bay by Very Hangry Productions, which you can find on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Yeah.